an opera singer and a comedian walk into a bar. She's gotten a taste of a career in classical music. He's spent several decades in the entertainment industry. They get to talking about show business, which they each know from very different angles, and they find they actually have a lot in common. Welcome to this segment of the Artists on the Verge podcast called, well, an opera singer and a comedian walk into a bar. It features me, your host, opera singer turned experimental performer, Emma Katrovis, talking to comedian and TV writer turned novelist, Nicholas Anthony. We'll be having conversations from across the high-low art divide with the goal of being honest about what a life-centering art, high or low, actually looks like. We recorded these first episodes in July 2023, and we'll be releasing them in chronological order. In this episode, Nick and I eventually come to some kind of resolution to our argument about William Derezievitz's Death of the Artist. I then start reading out loud the chapter focus on the film and TV industry within that book, and Nick reacts to it. I should say here that as we both got more comfortable talking in front of the microphone, we also started to kind of spitball more on a wider range of topics, some of which are controversial. In this case, for example, we delved into whether women were not allowed into the film industry because of discrimination or because lights are too heavy to move. But don't worry, I get my feminist revenge when I go on a rant about my oddly passionate dislike for, of all things, the movie The Social Network. Order your drinks and enjoy this bar-worthy conversation. Today's podcast guest is a cup of coffee. Please introduce yourself. <laughs> and uh, where do you come from? Ooh, that sounds delicious. Um, so I wanted to continue with Dereziewicz. Oh, wait a minute. We have to let our guests go. Hey, thank you for uh, spending time with us today, French Press. Is there socials we can find you on? And what about... Don't cut me off, cup of coffee. I'm trying to get you out of here. <laughs> Look, just, you didn't need to bring that up. Just go. Just get out of here. Just, just, just go. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Can you please just do an open mic and get this out of your system? Please. <laughs> Look, I, on the soundtrack, made the cup of coffee sound like it was walking away. Yeah. All right? That's some good quality improv. <laughs> um... <laughs> uh, so I wanted to continue with Dereziewicz. Someone please offer this man a job. <laughs> In comedy, please. Um, the, <laughs> the author of Dereziewicz uh, uh, of Death Quit of the Artist. adding your Czech And I just don't know how to pronounce to it, it in English. Dereziewicz. There you go. Dereziewicz. So William, Bill Dereziewicz. Billy. Um, the Death of the Artist. We talked about him a lot last time. Mm -hmm. And the plan last time already was for me to read the section on that he wrote in his book on film and television because mm. he divides it into sections where he talks about music, writing, 
visual arts and film and television. For some reason, he divides it into those like sections. Correct. And um, I just thought, you know, based on what you told me about the what you saw film of television, because you were in writers rooms and you were in L.A. and that it's actually interesting that this is one of the most optimistic chapters of the book. Because other than that, it's like it's a really pessimistic book about the state of, of yes. the arts. And just I think it's clear that at least my uh, my understanding of his um, work, I believe what's nice about his work is that he's essentially revealing the lie because mm -hmm. pre the internet it was impossible i mean mm -hmm. it's very difficult to become an artist and then everyone got sold this idea that oh now i have instant access to yeah. th that really is a huge yeah, takeaway yeah, yeah. from me that it's essentially like it he's just kind of closing the loop on the lie yeah meaning that it was always hard when people were sold this idea that they everyone could be an artist it created a lot of entitlement mm-hmm and and he's essentially saying like if you're going to be on these platforms this these platforms are already being throttled yeah so you know the advice which is the advice before the internet which mm -hmm. is you got to get creative about being creative yeah like it you have to make your own path yeah and unfortunately we were sold this idea that like oh there's these easy paths and the the nature of great art is that it's special mm -hmm. and Unfortunately, well, things like the Mr. Beastification of things, yeah. I don't feel that doesn't feel special to me. That feels like they figured out a, a form or like a platform yeah. and good for them. I'm not saying that I don't deny the success. I just mm -hmm. don't necessarily understand its value. Yeah. I mean, but then there's that whole argument with like everyone is an artist and that it's artificial scarcity and this kind of thing. No one would say that in 1980. No one yeah, would say everyone's But do we an care artist. what people said in 1980? Well, what I'm saying, I think why it's important is because what's happening uh -huh. is we were then sold this well, lie. But yeah, but the everyone is an artist thing that comes from at least, I mean, this is just from my reading of uh, of the um, Another Art World essay by David Graeber and Nika Dubrovsky. They say it goes back actually to romanticism. Novalis said that in it, everyone should be an artist. And um, and then basically the communists tried to put that in practice in in art communism and specifically the proletkult. Yeah, I just I think it's insulting to well to, to my the thing is lower that it, class people and working class people that like, why is it insulting? Because I mean the idea is that that basically art because would they just be don't have the, the time market. to sit around and think about this stuff. They're too busy yeah. having to work. Right. And I, I, well, see, and that's the thing is that it's basically taking art outside, like seeing it in a vacuum. It's not seeing it in the larger context of how people Correct. exist. And it's, and like, my question is basically if we, do, since we do live in a large scale society where there is specialization, why would art not be specialized? Isn't it a service as well? You know, it's, 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 it's totally, it's meant to be special. You're not yeah. meant to go to the opera every single night mm -hmm. and see the best play. It's like, you go, you're not meant, I mean, I think what happens even with TV and stuff and film, it stops being special. So you think that it's ubiquitous. So then, yeah. you know, maybe everyone has to be an artist in order to feed this machine, but it's, it, yeah. it corrupts but, it all. But I guess the question it raises is, you know, Derezievitz talks about how hard it is now to be an artist and how it's like, you know, and I, I then what you're saying, and yeah. you're, and I think you're, I think you're onto something that basically this, it's more that he's saying, that there's this dis there's a cognitive dissonance going on between the myth that's sold and the reality because it used to be it really used to be that the contender the pool of even people who could 
possibly imagine that they'd have a shot. The contenders were a much smaller pool. Correct. Whereas now, like theoretically, everyone's a contender who well, has the, access to the, the internet. The person who says, oh, you have an iPhone in your pocket, you can go do this yeah. thing. And it's like, that isn't this ubiquitous truth that we thought mm -hmm. it was. But paradoxically, I do think that there's something to be said about the internet centralizing everything as opposed to, uh, and killing local scenes. So especially yes. music, especially that, yeah. especially. I'm not saying music. it doesn't affect things on on. The, but but that already started with records. But uh, my that point is, if recording. that kills your desire to do it, if not your desire, but your ability to to, it to do it, it doesn't kill your ability to do it. Well, it kills your ability to do it well. I mean, I see. What I don't. It does. I don't agree. I see what I've seen. What I mean, some people are able to figure it out, but I can just see the 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 path of a musician who doesn't figure out a parallel career that's truly compatible with being a musician and they do kind of a dead end job and make good money on you know have a middle class life and then they want to be like you know cute little musicians on the side it doesn't it just doesn't work somehow it's always been hard yeah but that but that is the truth yeah. that it's always been hard and that what he what Derezievitz is is mainly i think i don't know if he knows it or he f sees it that way but what he's mainly pushing against is this myth around that has formed in the 90s around it. Correct. And that I Rather can agree with. Rather than saying that it's worse now than it used to be. It is, I think, for musicians because of recording. But that already started before the internet. That started in the 20th century with the recording um, I media just, industry. I, I think the, the key still comes down to it's you versus yourself. And if you really want to okay, be a musician, yeah. then write your own shit and learn how to play your own instruments. And it's mm. it's got to be... Like you it, got to I mean, as hater or not, you got to do the Taylor Swift model. So like. the, well, the Taylor Swift model isn't going to, the Taylor Swift model depends on her being the only winner in the situation. Like it depends, you know, it depends like, it, I don't know. It, I don't know enough yeah. about her story, but I yeah. just, I respect the fact that she does write her own music. She did was, a, she wrote for yeah, other people, people when she was, I understand that, but it then the idea that you either are massively successful or not yeah. is is the bar upon which it's valuable in your life isn't i don't think if you replay it all bon jovi doesn't maybe become bon jovi it doesn't mean that he doesn't love playing music and you know can still you know like there's there's different levels of what this quality can be saying that you can't do it I don't think is no. I think you could still you, figure it out. There's plenty of ways to figure it out, and I think, and I do want to get to this because yes. we. I don't want to have another like just when we're talking, but, um, I, yeah. I mean, what what I guess is is true is that there's lots of very unexpected and weird ways to figure it out in such a way that you can be happy and that you can keep creating and this kind of thing. But. I'm also not really interested battle. in what the whole. And, yeah. And that's another thing is that it may not be helpful to be looking at the big picture too much. For any one specific person. Yeah. Like the reality is, is you kind of got to say, and this is unfortunately what creates mm -hmm. the narcissism, but it's also potentially what makes the person focused mm -hmm. enough to create something that's special enough for mm -hmm. the market to actually give them some attention. Mm -hmm. Because you have to do things there, everyone that's ever been great did something that broke the rules and unfortunately along the way you're only taught to play by the rules that's i mean yeah and that's another thing that's true of, of academies that they kind of teach you a cookie Writing, cutter way of, yeah, of doing things yeah. 
Um, and they don't teach you to think in terms of communicating with audiences, really. You're kind of always playing. Or truly trusting expert. yourself. You're obsessed with that which has come before you. Yeah. You're obsessed with the canon. Mm -hmm. And you, there is, and this is why, you know, punk music or rap music, just it just was so visceral because it was human to human connection. Yeah. It was raw. Mm -hmm. And I just... You know, I, we can sit here and intellectualize this stuff and it's fun to chew on it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I believe that there's nothing that's going to stop somebody if they really want their expression. But you also say that, you know, people who are extremely talented who never figured it out. But that has I don't think that has I think that's more to do with like life stuff like yeah. mental health and. But th but that's part of it. But I'm I saying mean, all things equal. You're. You but know. there are no, but all things aren't equal. No. Yeah. But we're intellectualizing this. Uh -huh. Like the whole life isn't fair. Everything yeah. is complicated and this is as complicated a subject as anything. But to the people who don't figure it out, they usually stop doing At it. At some point, right. And it's just the fact that the people who do figure it out often just don't stop doing it. Yeah. And, and the question is, yeah, what is the difference there? I mean, because what, what I think is unfair is that some people just get lucky and they get that hit you know, where it's like that support of what they're doing and that fuels them. Like yeah. success really does fuel you, unfortunately. But it, it, it opens up uh, it opens up the conversation of yeah. free will versus yeah. destiny. Yeah. You know, it's it. But at, then also at, what's at, your personal responsibility versus, you know, but that's how much at the is core the of it. It's this deep all existential. Have, yeah. And all you have control over is what you do. Correct. Basically. And but, the illusion is that, I mean, intellectually, you talk to the the smartest people in the world seem to have a consensus that there's not much control. We have way less control than we think we do. Mm -hmm. That being said, when I look at successful people and I study successful people, it seems either through their faith in religion mm -hmm. or their faith in themselves, mm -hmm. it feels that they feel that mm -hmm. they have some sort of destiny or uh -huh. that it was they weren't going to be denied. Yeah. And in that respect, that is the illusion of tremendous self-will. Yeah. And so, but, I mean, it's true that what that helps you do is just take joy in creating again and again and again and keep putting stuff out there and keep correct. sending those things. Correct. Um, and, and on having, the one hand, you don't want to have that toxic positivity thing. But there's and, a way to do it without being toxic but that's positive. Different, but that's, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. There's a, just by doing it, it's a positive. Well, exactly. And, as and opposed to, to bitching take, about it. To take joy in doing it. And Try that being the end, yeah. Because there's... Now, if, there, if, if you're working a, a nine to five, like I can imagine that you're just going to have a really hard time finding that energy, you know, to do I, I understand do that. I understand that. But the reality is if I were to sit down in that person's life mm -hmm. and we were to really look at their schedule and mm -hmm. really look at their diet... Mm -hmm. I guarantee we could find time. Oh, of course you, you can always I guarantee find time, we could but find something. I guarantee we could we could figure it out. But at the same time, when it comes to create creative stuff, and you know this, I mean, that Look, I'm I'm in it. I'm yeah. talking. I'm walking the walk. I'm yeah. talking the walk. I'm no, trying to finish a novel. Yeah, and, and you have, and a lot of people just talk about it. Yeah. And you have a full manuscript, and you have like what a second draft or a third draft of a yeah, full man I'm, manuscript, yeah. and you wrote it when you were tremendously depressed during the pandemic. Yeah. So. Like I acknowledge that all of that, I, I but somehow I always get very uncomfortable with this sort of talk of now you can to give yourself a pep talk. Yeah. Like I think there's I guess it's just the duality between situation versus you. You as an individual giving yourself a pep talk is a good thing. Other people giving you pep talks about your own life and how you need to keep trying. That's that's another. To well, me. some people don't want to hear it. 
<clears throat> some people don't want to hear it because of exactly the things that you observed and people that you know um, having to do with mental health and just, yeah. you know, burnout. Yeah, you don't know what people are going through. You yeah. have no idea. I just, I, I, this is what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying the scientists are saying pretty definitively that we don't have as much choice as we think we do mm -hmm. and that the people who it does seem consistently that are mm -hmm. successful at least choose to believe that the choices they make determine the quality of their life. Yeah. So it's actually a contradiction. It's absolutely yeah. a contradiction. It's a paradox. Saying, is that you, you acknowledge the reality that we don't have control and yet in order to make one's way most gracefully through the world, you have to believe in your own control. How should we then live? We live, it, it, it's the back to the matrix of Joey Pantaleone when he is eating the steak and he uh -huh. goes, I know this isn't real, mm -hmm. but I, I and I okay. know that, but I'm, and I still choose to enjoy yeah. this piece of steak. Yeah. I know that it's probably, you know, it's insane. I don't actually know that. I think, I genuinely believe that I have a position in this world and mm -hmm. it, it, whatever that is, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to accept it. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, belief versus reality and choosing to believe that, which is most, I guess, beneficial to you or what, what allows you to even, be the best person. Yeah. That you even can in be. the face of it not being true, mm -hmm. I choose to believe things happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. And in that respect, I believe in causality in terms mm -hmm. of like the amount of work I put in. If I'm mm -hmm. consistent and over a long enough period of time, mm -hmm. I will get something out of it. Yeah. I don't necessarily get to decide yeah, exactly to the level or, but I, I'm going to get something out of it. Yeah. But I guess, I guess it's important just to apply it to yourself. Correct. Never to someone else. Cause you kind well, of. Well, it's, it, it, I think it the, the philosophy. That's a bias actually, a, a very common psychological bias that we think people get what they deserve. And that's just not how it is. Well, it, it is and it isn't. It's it's paradoxical. It's it's hard. It's it, this is again. This goes down to a very existential idea of it, do the choices you make determine the quality of your life? Yeah, for me, like so, I, I think maybe different personalities just react better to different framings, and you react well to this framing of things happen for a reason. I need to keep putting the work in because I have control in blah, blah, the blah. face of that not being true. Potentially. Yes, exactly. And you're, you, you are able to kind of live with that cognitive dissonance where you want to live by a way of seeing the world that you know is best for you to kind of survive. It's Even a, if you know intellectually that maybe it's not true, but it doesn't matter because well, all I, you have control over is your own mind. Yeah, Whereas correct. for me, for example, and even that could be an illusion, but, and that, and that might work for a lot of people. Um, for, for me, I just think I, I need to know that what I'm doing has some kind of bigger purpose and bigger value. And that's what keeps me going in the face of like lack of quote unquote success. So if I feel like the little things I'm doing every day are adding up to something that can, that can actually be of value to someone else potentially, even if right now it's not clear how, that's why I keep doing this podcast. Um, even well, though it's not a direct lot, like this podcast is not directly helpful to anyone, but I do think that those, it's like putting well, brick disagree. to brick over a long period of time. I think there's somebody that's listening to this conversation right now. That's like, wow, this is a fascinating conversation that yeah, helps hope, me feel a little less alone. Cause I've had that's, and that's the idea. similar ideas yeah. and I didn't and, know how to unpack it, but maybe somebody's experience allows me to go, Oh, okay, cool. I'm not, yeah. I'm not the only one. And that's what keeps me going is I can take the lack of response from the universe or whatever i can take the lack of acknowledgement i can take anything if if i know that if i know deep down that what i'm doing has purpose that's why i i or has has some kind of greater value 
And that's why I was not able to kind of continue on a very traditional path of just of, of trying to have a career that's just about my own success within an industry. Well, you're you know? figuring it out. Yeah. But I'm just saying like, whether whether you identify more with Nick's way of doing things or with mine, it, it doesn't matter. They're both just ways of, of yeah. trying to deal with the uncertainty. Yeah. So anyway, so let's get to this chapter. Um, so what I'm wanting to do is just read the introduction uh, to the film and television chapter of Derezivitz and, and by William Derezivitz. And the Death of the Artist. Uh, by... The Death of the Artist by William Derezivitz. And just tell me if this, if, you know, if, if it speaks to you, if you agree with things, if something reflects your experience or doesn't. So film and television, we're like halfway through. I mean, it's towards the end of the book. So we've heard all these like really depressing things about what happened to the music industry and the publishing industry. Um, television is the great exception. Every other art either is starving for money or has succumbed to a blockbuster model of winners and losers or both. I mean, already that first sentence is like weird to me because <laughs> I th I mean, one, this guy never wrote for television, correct? I don't think so. No. Yeah. So it might be a grass is greener sort of thing. He might see the, the tremendous success mm -hmm. and then not realize that it's still a Built. very, yeah. ve I mean, the, the strikes currently yeah. are yeah. the result of the evaporating middle class, yeah. even within yeah. the, I think, 11,600 mm. writers in the WGA you know it it's a very small pool of them are even getting the development money that mm -hmm. of stuff that never even gets like yeah. hey we you know we'll pay you to write your pilot mm -hmm. but it never gets made because yeah. it's in a social in an ecosystem where we have to keep that person fed because yeah. we're we're in this yeah not even to mention the people who aren't even in the guild or mm -hmm. who aren't even um a part of that process yeah. so i mean you weren't in the guild i was example. i've never been a part of the wga the show i wrote for was non-union not mm -hmm. by choice but just mm -hmm. the way it works out and people don't realize that a lot of things are non-union south park is non-union yeah. like mm -hmm. there's a lot of interesting weird mm -hmm. things that are non-union all reality uh television mm -hmm. is non-union all cartoons are non-union oh interesting um it's it it's pretty for as much money as be, is being made off of like, I, I don't know exactly because I've never been, I've never made cartoons, but that stuff alone should, how that doesn't exist under the WGA and or the, yeah. I think it might under the, um, the Actors Guild with the voiceover stuff, mm -hmm. but the actual creation of it is, it's all contract. Yeah. It's the Wild West. Yeah. And there's obviously precedent and all those, but there's not like specific, like how there is with television or how there mm. was, and then it changed because of mm -hmm. streaming. So I, I mean, right out of the gate, I, yeah. it feels well, a little the next Pollyanna. Sentence, yeah. The, the next sentence is even worse. TV is rolling in cash and the cash is relatively well distributed among creators. I don't. I, I, it's so funny because the rest of the book is so incredibly gloomy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the reasons are obvious. We all continue to pay a lot of money for it, both directly through subscription fees and indirectly in the form of advertising. And that money is being used to make more shows and therefore employ more people than ever. It's no coincidence that television, of all things, the boob tube, the vast wasteland, is also blossoming artistically, alive with a sense of excitement and confidence like no other art form today. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it makes me, I start thinking about my friends who are staffed on WGA shows, mm -hmm. and 
I would be interested to hear their perspective. Like, do they feel like if you're on the inside of that, Mm -hmm. is that how you feel? I mean, look, it kills me that I was in Los Angeles during Mm -hmm. what is considered like the biggest boom of, of television and was only able to get one job. Yeah. And, but why, like, how do people get jobs in this place? I mean, you, you write scripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, it, it shifted on my watch. It went from, you started with, uh, back in the day, they didn't even want originals. They wanted yeah. you to do. Um, oh, like, like a spin, like you, you take a show that already exists correct. and you write a, a yeah, show. Yeah. You do yeah. a spec you on, you know, you do uh, I don't even remember. I can't even, it's been so long since I've even thought about this, but um, I wrote an episode of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I wrote an episode of um, uh, Modern Family. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like you're writing fan fiction. <laughs> yeah. These are called, well, I can't even remember. My brain doesn't even, but just this idea of writing um, specs of yeah. existing television shows. Mm-hmm. Because the idea was, is they want to know, this was the idea before, they want to know that you can write in the voice of someone else. Mm-hmm. So when that you get brought on, that, yeah. and now um, there's still some legacy contests that yeah. have you submit uh, existing episodes from existing shows. Mm-hmm. And I submitted to a ton of those things yeah. and never got any traction, mm-hmm. even though I really loved... Um, I loved, I, I, I think it's what gave me a lot of confidence to mm-hmm. know that I could write. And it's, I think it's still very yeah. valuable for a D- young useful. television writer yeah. to, to find a show that they love and then imagine what a, a potential, you know, go mm-hmm. look up the episodes and, mm-hmm. you know, and then you also learn the form and you, yeah. know, you learn a lot by doing that. But now it's original pilots. You yeah. write original pilots and then you submit to either contest or through, if you're doing, I, I mean, I did it through stand up. I did it through taking classes. Mm-hmm. I met professors and and um, and then eventually you want to try to get to agents. Mm-hmm. When I started to really push on that was, you know, it was a time, it's always competitive. It's always hard. It was, yeah. I'm sure even in the 80s, it was the most difficult thing in the whole world. But in addition, it then became, you know, there were already people who, if you were in, it didn't matter Um uh, you know, there's tons of straight white male writers who are currently on staffs and that's, yeah. I'm not denying that. And I'm not even mm-hmm. denying that the numbers aren't higher still, yeah. but the people who are breaking in these yeah. days, I mean, I support the diversity, mm-hmm. but it's at a time when I was breaking in, mm-hmm. they also were like, we have, you, we just, we well, want, I diverse- guess the difference is that you, they actually would tell you directly that you can't, that we can't really take you, we can't really consider you yeah. because we are looking for people who aren't white, Which is, white yeah, white. yeah. It's, it was is, just, it, is it true that someone told you that like, if you were at least bisexual, you, they could work with that? Yeah, no, that's too much, yeah. I mean, that's an experience I had and um, in a high, high lot, like it took me a lot. To get even I mean, to that point. he saw shows and all yeah. this stuff and it was, it, it was heartbreaking yeah. moment when you're just like, it to get to that point yeah. and then to be told like, it's just going to take too much work. It mm-hmm. would take me too much to get you. I would have to show you around time. And it's just like, mm-hmm. you know, okay. At that yeah. point, you're like, I don't even know if, is am, am I talented? Am I not mm-hmm. talented? Am, is it because of the, po- like, what is happening? You don't yeah. need, I didn't even know what was going on. And it takes a lot of strength because at that point, like, it, it, you know, it would be easy to create some sort of narrative that for me, it wasn't, I, I didn't feel like I was like, oh, well, 
this is racist or genderist or what for me it was like I, my whole time i was like i'm just gonna get better i'm just gonna mm. get so good that i cannot be denied yeah and that's still the thinking. I'm just yeah. trying to get better. And that's why I started writing novels. And because that can distinguish you at least. Yeah. Trying to, you know, you have to figure out what, you know, the market's changing. So what brings mm -hmm. you value now? And it's not about like, you know, I didn't want to woe is me, me, you know, like, mm -hmm. woe is me, me. me it. <laughs> um, but I, 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 cause I'm not, you know, what's the thing? Then just go home, just, just shut up and go sell BMWs or something, yeah. you know, like yeah. I, I, I had to fight. Yeah. And, me even coming to Prague and being part of this summer program last year was a part of that was trying mm -hmm. to get sharper and better. Yeah. And, and I am all the more interesting as a writer, you know, I've, I, my mm. writing is much stronger than it was. My ability to kick out, you know, solid sentences and paragraphs is way stronger than yeah. it was. And, um, so I, to me, it feels like just the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the pendulum, deservedly needed to go obviously yeah. it was so far you know into the you know male and and white side of things that I mean, what's, what's paradoxical is that i'm not sure it's really changing anything fundamentally because the people higher up are still the same people yeah that's the bigger want, there's a yeah. bigger question of is it all pageantry that you know are the yeah. are these giant corporations just placating the yeah you know, the, the population and giving them the diversity without mm -hmm. actually changing how the money is going no. at the top. And, and that seems to be the case. I mean, it correct. seems to be more and more outrageous. Actually. Yeah. And that's the hypocrisy that I saw that, you know, and, and the other part of it too, it's about power because I've, mm -hmm. I straight up, I, I used to go to talks at the WGA in LA all mm -hmm. the time. And there were a couple of female showrunners who were like, I'm never hiring a man. Yeah. And that's like, ridiculous. I and, we heard, and we heard and about like, that public, public, the, the editor who said, she wouldn't even look at a at a a, a book by this male writer, this ma yeah. white male writer, because she said, "Well, they've had time to tell their story." Well, there's two different things and going on. Like, though, there. But that's the same mentality. I mean, yeah, the idea of of it, it was wrong then to exclude. No, I mean, yeah, the idea of someone being excluded because of race or gender or mm -hmm. sexual preference is just wrong. Yeah it's wrong when they were doing it against women and mm -hmm. when women get in control and they're doing it against men, that's also wrong. Mm -hmm. Like it's not interesting. The, what's interesting is I want to see art that comes from what I see in the world. And mm -hmm. there are men and women and all sorts of different yeah. people in the world. And yes, there has been, I understand why someone would be upset mm -hmm. and why, but at what point but does the, the, does this generation have to have, of men have to hold it on their shoulders yeah. at, at, at how long and what but the, i mean the, the irony is i think he says later in this chapter that the you know the well he never talks about the diversity push yeah. actually but um he he does say that the people still that that break in still come from the same like three or four schools there is a lot of that too so they you know but, but that's not like um a problematic advantage right whereas if you were if you well know but that's I mean? an elitist advantage no no no. but that's what you know? i mean yeah. is that is that people focus on certain advantages over other advantages yeah. and if but you that, focus on on, gen said, on these very immutable characteristics yeah. like gender and and race you're you're that's why the elites love it because you're ignoring the Correct. let them the actual yeah thing that's happening the let, actual pipeline yeah you're you're a pawn in the game yeah but what I also see happening, since you're saying that it used to be that they wanted you to just write a show, like the, an, a, uh, an episode of an existing show, yeah. and now they're more into the spec pilot. Yeah. Um, it seems like they're also just generally more into, like, 
individual finding individuals not just people who do a craft but they want like personalities in the room yes and they want voices and they want and that then goes with you know all sorts of diversity in terms of not not just the obvious kinds like race and gender but also just like do you have an interesting story yeah or are you just an i'm sorry another kid from the midwest totally and look i get that that isn't interesting to like i i don't want to see a tv show you know that has a staff that's all the same. I mean, I want diversity in the staff, but yeah. to say diversity only means gender and and, and race and race and not looking at any other factor. It's just it, and I know that you know there's somebody listening to this going like, well, you don't know what it was like, and it's like what's crazy is that as a straight white male, I I have a taste mm-hmm. of what bigotry feels like now at least that's how i feel but it's very different it's very different it's not apples to apples but it's fascinating to be at a time Mm -hmm. when the pendulum was so far i was you know two years old when you know the that was you know it was pervasively white and male Mm -hmm. and by the time i got there it's just and i I agree that the pendulum needed to switch it's just i also want to see it at the table so yeah. what do you do? Do you look, I mean, that's why I have this podcast because I just don't believe that that's going to be possible if you have these centers like Hollywood, I, like, yeah. you know, oh, I just, because I there's mean, always, may, gonna, if it's musical chairs, there's always going to be something on, because there's too much, there's just too many human beings and there's too much talent. I out guess there. I'm still in the position to think that I have I, through my experience of being a human being and through the life that I've lived and and the amazing travels that I've been able to have and what I've learned and and what's specific to my experience, I I believe I'm creating content right now that is that the market will find of tremendous value. Well, great. Yeah. I mean, I, I I am happy. I mean, I I hope that that's the case. But I'm just saying, you know, your experience. What I, what I hear here is like. You know, if, if 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 you did get in, it would be at the expense of ten people who would have really liked to. I mean, it's just it's that kind of system. And but when you have that, that point, kind of system, though, you and when you have when you're it, it, choosing between that many people, yeah, you can't make choices based on talent alone. You yeah. have to make choices outside. But it of comes that. down to like, and it's always been the case at whether whether the selection process happened early on because you were from the kind of family that would have granted you access to the right kind of schools um, and because those schools you know people weren't, like women weren't really even allowed in film very much it That's was frowned true. upon but there just weren't very many it was somehow it wasn't that it wasn't allowed but there was some something was happening in the culture where there just weren't that many people women studying that, that is true. That yeah. discipline. So there was just sort of an unspoken rule. There were rule. many women in my screenwriting classes. No, I'm, I'm not talking about your time. Oh, I'm talking about before. Well, but I, I, and, I was going to film school in, you know, just 2000. Yeah, but that's already because th- those women are, are kind of like the, 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 I don't know, the, the moss on which, you yeah. know, I mean, that was already a time yeah. that I think where it was very different. I'm yeah. talking about like really before, before, but what I'm saying is. Well, it was male. Do- I mean, filmmaking, I think the, the <laughs> one of the misconceptions about filmmaking I mean, back in the day, one, filmmaking is a brutal thing. Uh-huh. Like being on sets, like the first people, like when they first started making movies and they're like, well, we need people to help us. It's a very physical, long hours, brutal thing. And I think it just naturally, like they would literally hire furniture movers to come mm-hmm. in and be the grips. The and then, yeah. And you just need, you know, like 
I yeah, mean, but the director doesn't need to do that. So in theory, well, that's you that's know, a like, patriarchal. Yeah, you know, that's a different thing. Um, but you're talking about all the all the the stuff. Well, but today, editing. I mean, editing is often actually, at least here in the Czech Republic, I think there's a pretty long kind of history of women editors. Yeah, editing is. Um, yeah, and again, I'm not saying that today that there aren't. I mean, there are tremendously diverse. I mean, at all aspects of filmmaking. But I'm just talking about why it would have potentially been male driven, isn't some sort of like you know, conspiracy against women. Mm. It's that it was a fucking grueling thing. It required... But only certain jobs. Like, it wasn't... But the idea is that you're in this thing that's really difficult that is male-dominated, and then you're wondering why potentially there's not a bunch of women around. It's like, well, it just, at its core, was inherently... Right. So it wasn't... You're saying it wasn't codified. It was just kind of... happened naturally because... It I mean, write, writing films, write, to write a screenplay, to then figure out how to get mm-hmm. a camera and to get a crew, that is incredibly fucking difficult. But it's at, difficult at, in a way that isn't, there's no physical, it doesn't help to be physically I think at a time strong. there was absolutely, that, there. I'm saying at the very beginning of it. With moving the lights. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know enough to understand how women were, have been repressed because they have and it that part of it in terms of the arts and in terms of specifically novel writing there's there's it, it there was an active uh abuse of not using half of the talent pool mm-hmm. for many many years in terms of filmmaking specifically my point is simply why weren't there more women directors at the beginning because i think it was just a male dominated thing right and I don't think that it was, hey, we're, I mean, I think the culture was probably, I mean, obviously was, I mean, women didn't vote until a certain time. There was the you know, 20s or something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, so it, 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 I don't, I don't, I think, you know, at that point, every industry was unfortunately driven by patriarchal ideas. Yeah. But I mean, that it's not, it's neither here nor there. What I'm just, what I, what I was trying to say is that, when there is just one industry, when there's a limited amount of seats at the yes. table, you have you can't really only choose the quote unquote best people because for a lot of things, it's very hard to determine what makes someone really great in something. It just seems to me that there have always been extra things that have been determining success within these in- centralized industries, especially when there's so much. Because in, I think in films, what happens is that there's so much money at stake. Yeah. And and that makes people not want to take risks. Then there is a small little percentage of it, and maybe not insignificant, but but it's at the it's at the end of like this whole assembly line of power and money that you might have actual decisions about individuals based on sexism or racism happening. Yeah. Because they're like, "Uh, well, I'm putting all of this money into it. Do I want to give it to someone who doesn't have as much experience?" Usually, you know, the the thing that women directors complained about was like this whole experience glass ceiling where like there was always like not experienced enough because they didn't have you know well but it's like the argument i was listening to uh, an nba player talk about could there be female basketball players in the in the nba and his thing was why would there be well he it was it was asked of him he's like do you think that you know given that there are now eighth grader grade women who are able to dunk you know, mm-hmm. and that the sport has just evolved so much. Like, do you think that there's a female that could exist in the NBA? And he made a really good argument, which was if you started them younger, mm-hmm. because the idea is if let's say you had somebody playing against women, 
all the way up into like like mm. say through college and then you popped him into the NBA he this person uh this basketball player who was in the NBA didn't think that they would be able to compete because they had been competing yeah but to me that's like a really weird example because with film you're still talking about intellectual and like creative abilities the, and then the, the ability to leave this, whereas you, this is it, purely physical if you haven't been if you haven't been given those early chances if you weren't yeah. a staff writer if yeah. you weren't an assistant that's, if that's you weren't the, those things the thing. and then yeah. all of a sudden it was it, you know the equivalent of like hey now you're going to direct a movie mm -hmm. and it doesn't go well it's yeah. like well the system wasn't yeah. set up for yeah. this to go well but it's still the it's it's about but what but yeah. to your point though that is you know how do you get to the point where there are enough women who have the who have had the experience at some point someone has to decide okay first of all we have to encourage women to to go into this field and then we have to give them opportunities. And so there you do actually have to maybe think in terms of being conscious of that. But it's true that the fact that there's so many male and white male you know, execs and this kind of thing, well, that's because you, you generally work your way up to that. And yeah. if, if you started out you know, 30, 40 years ago in a very patriarchal system, totally. of course that it's gonna reflect. Absolutely, and, and the other part of this too is we are having this conversation, like it's active. Like yeah. I'm interested in hearing, you know, like I don't have it. I don't fully understand it. It's complicated. It's well, I can only speak to my own experience. Unlike in sports, I would say, unlike in sports, there's just a lot of subjective. Totally. Uh, you know, just kind totally. of, hey, I like you, kid. I think the problem is too many times people are just afraid to even have these conversations or talk. Like no. we don't know. We're figuring it out. We're yeah. all. And, and the one thing I can say, like unequivocally, is that. It, you can tell that it's like really engaging people for some reason on this deep guttural level, mm -hmm. even if it doesn't directly affect them. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that more of these types of conversations need to be had. Of course, but they're, they're being had. The problem is that it's like there's these two camps that just aren't talking to each other Correct. about it. You know? Yeah. And, and again, part of it is that I can only speak about my experience and then... You know, it, the the rest of it is, it's just an interesting. Like I am curious how other people speak. You know, and, and live, and, and, and yeah. well, that's the artist in you, and that's yeah. why, and that's why I think that there is a good argument to be made that that the arts should be particularly conscious of identity and, and experience. The problem, I, of course, yeah. is what I think it irritates you. What irritates me as well is that it becomes very hypocritical when certain things like the fact that you know people only come from a, like a three or four schools into the system that you have to know someone that they often come from a certain amount of yeah. money um, and that they have to know a certain certain people um it, that's kind of brushed under the carpet well, but the fact that the money is going in the same fucking pockets and 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 that they're that there's getting that there's a bigger fork between the haves and the have-nots that's being swept under the carpet a carpet unless people strike but then everyone what everyone's talking about is you know what what kind of rainbow do we have in our in our writer's room you know that we can be proud of because and it's all just about making the people at the top look better that's all i mean that is a pessimistic argument that might be true but it's not pessimistic you know because to me to me it just means don't stop looking to the establishment yeah to to represent you yeah. just stop looking to the establishment to represent you that's why i have artists yeah. on the verge yeah like that's all so we're getting really off track. <laughs> well, please edit it all to make me sound brilliant mm -hmm. and 
I'm and I, balanced yeah. and it's a testament to our times that I'm like going th in my head I'm going through my head and I'm thinking what should I like should I edit some of that out not because it's not interesting but because I just don't want this to become a political show I think what it is though is it's the fear of seeing people it ha it's it's like self-censorship is what happens yeah so yeah. you start to think like these things that happen to other people could potentially happen to yourself and then mm. you start living in a in a position of fear mm. i'm just not interested in that fear yeah me i'm also not interested in because it's being, selfish i'm not interested in also in being misogynistic or mm -hmm. even being around people who are misogynistic or racist i don't want i don't want anything to do with that i also don't want to live my life in fear yeah i want to be me and sometimes i make mistakes and mm -hmm. sometimes well, the problem, of course, is is that that's this weird. There's been a codification of how you should talk about you know, what position exactly you need to have and what words even you should use. You know, that's at the at the extremes. But I do think it's become normalized to think in those terms. Like, not what do I actually think, but how do I formulate this in a way that isn't quote unquote problematic? Yeah. And, and the thing is, is if if in your heart. If, if you truly know who you are, which I do know who I am and I know mm -hmm. where I'm coming from. And I do think I have an interesting perspective having seen this mm -hmm. firsthand that somebody could immediately be like, no, 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 that, that doesn't help the, the, the bigger message here. The bigger point is that these people over here were repressed and these people weren't. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, well, you're telling me that I was in the had it lucky camp. Mm -hmm. I don't feel lucky. And I'm yeah. trying to explain that's also part of the conversation mm. is it's not just like lots of people can feel disenfranchised. Why do they feel disenfranchised? If it, if it truly is about gender and race and those things, then let's, let's address that. But is if, if it's actually about something bigger, which is we have a society that's mm -hmm. structured where people become disenfranchised. Yeah, that's exactly. And, and, yeah. and is that the, the, you know, is that what we should be focused on? And of course, if you want to get really tinfoil hatty about it, that's exactly what the people who are holding the reins want. They, you know, yeah, they, they want us they, arguing. They want about, you yeah. arguing, and, 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 and especially infighting between people who are basically middle class, upper, even upper middle class. Yeah. Those aren't the millionaires, billionaires no. who who are actually running the show. Well, at this point, it's and, all billionaires. And billionaires. Okay, those aren't the billionaires <laughs> who are actually running the show. I'm a millionaire. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, you're not in the club anymore. <laughs> you're not part of it. <laughs> so we need to take in the millionaires. Yeah, we need to take in the... Take them in. Put a, a little blanket around them. <laughs> and say, you're one of us now. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I, I'm, you know, there's... I think we also have to be honest about what is in our DNA. And oh God, I DNA. think ultimately what's potentially in there is a winner-take-all mentality. I don't think so. I think it has been for sure. But it, historically, what's so interesting, I don't think it's there in actual societies that actually know each other. What Where it is, is in the, it's, it, it's, emerge, it's an emergence kind of thing from large-scale societies. It's the network effect, maybe. I don't know if I'm even using. I need to look that up. But Derezievitz, the guy who wrote the this book, was was talking about this network effect that it kind of tends towards this winner takes all. The network effect. But, well, and that's the thing. But if, that's if, the network. If, that's if it's not winner take all. Then the idea is that if you're going to succeed, then you need to have a pretty ruthless attitude. You need, to, and I see this in the comedy world. I've seen it in. I've watched my friends. 
as they get success distance themselves but then you're just then you're just reinforcing this bullshit but but maybe that's unfortunately what you have to do really well as an individual in the business yeah um this is really getting off course but this is but it's all i mean it's fascinating that this book is you know seeding all of these conversations yeah for sure so okay so that was the first optimistic paragraph so how did we get here The best thing uh, that cable and streaming have done for the medium over the last 20 years, both aesthetically and financially, is also one of the circumstances that is frequently lamented about the media landscape today. They have chopped up the audience into ever smaller pieces. In the age of the network, everybody watched the same few things, which meant that executives could only program shows that they thought would appeal to the entire country, or at least the people tuning in, or at least enough of the country. Um, And that would be acceptable to the corporations that were advertising to it. That's important. Yes, Americans shared a common frame of reference back when everyone was watching Walter Cronkite, but everyone was also watching The Beverly Hillbillies, the top-ranked show the uh, the year that Cronkite took the anchor's chair. Um, there's a really fa- we I think we listened to this that I keep telling people about this um, when Will met Grace, which is a, a episode of Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell, mm-hmm. his podcast, mm-hmm. and it's about how that. I mean, really, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's a silly show. I don't really like that era of television, the laugh track era. I don't like Friends. I don't, I just don't think it's most of it's very funny. Blasphemous. I just don't think it's funny. Like they, uh, to me, it's like absurd because I watch the scene in like Friends and they just say something and suddenly people are laughing and it's like, that wasn't a joke. You're just telling me it's a joke because you needed a joke there. But anyway, Will and Grace apparently like the argument that Malcolm Gladwell basically has is that Will and Grace... Uh, um, helped gay marriage come through because it kind of the it, normalization it, it of, normalized yeah. being gay and it and and of course and they go through all the decisions that they made to make this gay character will kind of appealing to even a more mass audience you know he didn't have he wasn't particular look like, this is where the corporations potentially got it right <laughs> you know like yeah. and there's potentially a huge section of, of the american audience that feels like that was wrong mm-hmm and it's well because they wouldn't have done it if it wasn't going to make them money yeah exactly and gladwell actually um he played like a soundbite of this conservative politician who was like saying there's one evil in the world and that is will and grace (laughs) it's making it normal to be gay and and but particularly specific evil (laughs) (laughs) but well i don't i don't think he quite said it that way basically that was the like the undertone of it but basically Gladwell was saying, yeah, it's, he, he's right that Will and Grace was very powerful and that it allowed, it it, it made it normal to be And gay. what's fascinating is I believe that character is straight yeah. in real life. And yeah. that... And th- but that was another decision that yeah. they made that by casting a straight actor who was fairly but even, manly even through today's lens, even that wouldn't. Fly. Oh yeah, that wouldn't fly yeah. today. Today it would be like icky to, to think in those terms as they as those execs did around Will and Grace. But it caused real change potentially. Yeah, yeah. Look, it caused the, I, real change. And today, with the fragmentation of the audience, you have people watching these incredible shows that have all this artistic freedom, and can really go into some very like out there places. But it's not changing anyone's mind because. It, well, they just don't. You, have you don't. The, you don't see what you eyes. don't want to see. You don't well, see but there are other these. You know, back then, you know, Will and Grace was getting like I think what they would call like a yeah he talks about 15 or a 20 share yeah which is i believe the equivalent of like 15 or 20 he does millions he does those people. numbers later yeah. in this chapter like how different it is today like each show gets such a fraction yeah. of what something like will and grace would have gotten yeah um but what i'm saying is like as wonderful as as the artistic freedom is 
it also means that people don't have to be confronted with something like that. We have all these overtone windows that are in totally different places yeah. and have very little overlap instead of trying having anything that would bring people from wildly different backgrounds together. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it, what's fascinating when I hear you say that is the idea of like, you know, we talk about the, you know, oh, back in the 90s when writers were getting paid and blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. And it wasn't, but they were also 20 million people were watching an episode. So yeah. of course you it would was get. A, but it was maybe even a smaller, smaller industry because of that, right? Because uh, there was only one writer's room for Will and Grace. Yeah, there were less shows, but. Um, there were fewer shows. That must be mean. That I don't know. Fewer... I'm just fascinated now. What ma It makes me kind of where my brain goes is because I heard an interview with Bob Iger and I've heard interviews with Bob Iger. I don't, I don't really have an opinion on him. The interviews that I have heard, he's an incredibly thoughtful person. And he was talking about the writer's strike. In, mm. I just heard a soundbite, but it was something like, look, the money's not there, he was saying. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what is this, the strong man argument from the side of the corporations? Like, mm -hmm. what is the, you know, what is their perspective? What, how, you know, because I'm sure they're taking a tremendous amount of risk and putting up a ton of money mm -hmm. for all these shows that don't work. And then everyone that's not on that side who isn't putting up the risk, all they see are the wins mm -hmm. and the money that's being made. Mm -hmm. And they don't see all of the losses and all of the, the risk. Mm -hmm. And that's the other side of it is... Um, you know, in that respect, in terms of, you know, American capitalism, the people who win, there's a tremendous amount of risk involved. And most people who are entrepreneurs have failed a ton. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's this whole class that's unfailable. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe I well, part of that. Just flush stuff down that, you know, if it doesn't work out, you know, it's not your living. That's yeah, the thing. But there's that's still... why they can price dump. It yeah. should be illegal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I it's just it's it's more complicated than I understand. But um, continue. okay, let us let yeah. continue because we're not gonna we're on um, <laughs> we're on paragraph two yeah. of the. Um, in the age of the networks, everybody watched the same few things, which meant that executives could only program shows that they thought would appeal to the entire country and that would be acceptable to the corporations that were advertising to it. Cable, specifically HBO, developed a different model. The broadcast networks, it has been said, sell viewers to advertisers. The premium networks sell programs to viewers. Before it could pioneer a new kind of television, HBO pioneered a new kind of revenue stream, the paid subscription. Dispensing with advertising meant dispensing with concerns about ratings or quote standards. A successful show was one that made people want to subscribe, whether or not it drew a lot of viewers. And since the network didn't have to care if companies that market uh, things like cereal or diapers would want to be associated with its shows, or whether the FCC would censor them, since its programs could incorporate not only sex, nudity, cursing, and graphic violence, but also the kind of sophistication that became possible when you're no longer trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator, HBO produced a lot of successful shows. In consecutive years beginning in 1998, the network launched Sex and the City, The Sopranos, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Six Feet Under, and The Wire. The floodgates had opened. HBO demonstrated that people were willing to pay for television, which was otherwise so bad that you had to give it away. I mean, I do think that about television. Well, yeah. And it's um, fascinating that, it, you know, the reason why the FCC is it just, they were just broadcasting it. So yeah. anyone could grab it and yeah. they're like, all right, well, maybe we need to have some regulation Standards. on what which anyone the internet, Yeah, which yeah. the internet doesn't have. 
um, as long as you offered them something that they thought was worth paying for. Showtime, FX, AMC, and others joined the fun, and the subscription model started feeding on itself. The better and more lucrative that TV got, the better and more lucrative it got. <laughs> the streaming services, which entered scripted television in a significant way in 2013 with Netflix's House of Cards, haven't so much changed the model as by infusing additional cash, a lot of additional cash, expended it st expanded it still more. In 2009, there were 210 scripted shows. By 2019, the number was 532. So like in 10 years, it like doubled. The yeah, but the, but the shows. number of episodes went way down. Right. So, I mean, it's not like it's not like the work doubled at this point, no. but the number of writers rooms I doubled. Yeah, I'm not. But the work was not as long term. The work wasn't as long term. It wasn't the. the yeah, it wasn't. I, 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 I don't know. I don't. I, again, I can only speak from my own experience, but it was. I, I don't know a ton. I mean, I've been around a lot of really successful stand-up mm -hmm. comedians, and I still know very, very few people mm -hmm. who are successfully financially employed as television writers. Very few. Yeah. And I'm if, if there's anybody that I've ever met in my whole life that should know a bunch, mm -hmm. I, I, by going to UCLA and being a part yeah, of their yeah. I mean, you extension were in it. program you were in that and, world. Yeah. and to, knowing writers, being in writers rooms, even the people that I knew had a hard time. And these are people with, you know, diverse backgrounds. Even they had tough times getting, yeah. it's still just super hard yeah. and super competitive. Yeah. And, you know, for every one job, there are who knows how many scripts being sent yeah. in for it. Yeah. It's just, it's regardless of all of the yeah. politics of it all, it's just a numbers game difficult. Yeah. But I guess it was me. I mean, I guess it's just because there's more people also wanting to do it. Cause it used to be that, pe that there just weren't that many schools that taught television writing. And by the way, Oh, another thing I wanted to ask you about, there's like this paragraph in the section of this, of the death of the artist, that's about writers or just writing that just kind of says, well, you know, a lot of writers are going into TV because they know, you know, that are getting and creative by writers, writing, you mean novelists, people, people or, who are getting creative yeah. writing degrees basically are going into TV because they know that that's where it's at. And I'm like, how can someone like I could not imagine someone who's only ever been in a writing like a prose writing or poetry writing workshop being able to do that. It's such a specific skill. Yeah, no, it's like, that's it, ridiculous. You would you have to just go. You in. would have to be. I mean, maybe like just maybe naturally yeah, but that's ability, like, you know, just yeah. an innate ability to understand. But that doesn't count. Like that's an outlier. Yeah. That's, um, it, it is a specific skill. And I think, I mean, yeah, that's why it's, you have it's to like study learning, that I, I don't think people understand how different, like I didn't understand how to write prose yeah. after I had already been on right. Emmy award winning television shows. Yeah. I started to write prose and I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Yeah. But like, it's the worst the same way the other way um to some extent well the idea think, is that you don't the big thing is yeah there's just a formatting thing yeah. but that can be tough. No, it's pretty, not just the formatting it's just the th the way you're supposed to think visually the way totally. that, that a scene it's a completely it's different thing so different cinema is the collection of not only visual but sound because it's just a, like a recipe for a cinematic experience that's what you're writing well you're writing essentially a, a it's a internal document yeah exactly that is meant to then be used for people to create a physical production yeah, yeah so understanding that it's like the blueprint for a house yeah 
and thinking like, you know, I, I don't even know how to maybe make a comparison, but the, you know, when I recently taught my mm -hmm. comedian friend how to, you know, when we sat down to help him write scripts, I watched him understand the visual language and not only the visual language, but then the, uh, you know, the, the idea of thinking about it in terms of what the audience is hearing as well, mm -hmm. because that's a huge, that can be, you know, some yeah. writers don't think about that as much. If you think about like the, uh, Aaron Sorkins of the world, he's so dialogue heavy that it's, I don't like him. Well, I disagree <laughs> adamantly, but I think he's pretentious. I think I think I, the way that he writes you gotta smart listen. people. It's like he's I'm gonna I, write smart people right no, now, no, 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 no. and they talk really fast and they talk over. I disagree each with other. all of the things she's saying. I that's fine. We sit down and watch his masterclass. You need to let go of the institution. You need to let go. But he is he is. <laughs> I think that he looks a like pretentious waspy. phony. He looks like that. But when you actually sit down with him, he one he stammers. Oh, cool. Which How is, humanizing. <laughs> but it is oddly humanizing because he's not this He dreams elegant... of being able to stalk fast. That's his whole... It all comes well, back. Well, he did it have a style. That. that was definitely his style. Because but... he kind of made it on West Wing, right? Well, and he did before that. that. Oh, really? His big thing was A Few Good Men. The thing is, the social network, that movie, for some reason, offended... Like, I don't get offended because I just could care less what someone else... But that movie kind of offended me. In terms of... In terms of like just glorifying these geeky men who thought they were so smart that that boy you know this 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 whoever played zuckerberg the most boring eisenberg. person jesse on, eisenberg and, but and, explain what was yeah. offensive to you so i think i don't what think it was, you mean offensive yeah i think you just intellectually Look, disagree with it you know i think it was I think it was that they overstated how smart Zuckerberg is. I don't think he's that smart. It's not the, this is not the story of a highly intelligent, brilliant individual. It just is not. And making it into the story of some misunderstood genius is so fucking stupid. Well, he also disagrees with the movie. Yeah. And so, I don't know what his disagreement is, yeah. but, but I'm just talking about the movie. I don't, I don't yeah. really, I think what really got me was when his partner, so he, cause he, he has like this partner that's by the, Garfield, Andrew Garf Garfield, Garfield, Garfield. Yeah. You know, he's just, you know, he has all these big man issues, you know, he's like, he has all this money issues and like, oh, we're in a war with the other, you know, upstarts and they misunderstand us so much. And now my girlfriend's setting something on fire on my bed. She's so fucking crazy. Yeah. And that, for some reason, really bothered me. And there was also this, this whole aspect of it where, you know, Sorkin decided, okay, well, in the end, he's really just doing it for the girl, you know? And really, he's just motivated by, um, by well, you might the be, fact that he was rejected yeah. at some point. Well, and but I believe Zuckerberg doesn't agree, agree with, with that. that. He doesn't like yeah. being seen that way. Yeah, right? it's, they had to kind of decide, mm -hmm. you know, hey, I mean, but Sorkin's oh, written oh, other things. And where... then that stupid trope where he's writing on the window with the yes, <laughs> like, what? I well, it's know very it's visual. The, you can I know see, it's, yeah, cinematic, it's cinematic, but it's so yeah. fucking stupid. Yeah. Like, why? Do they... Well, uh, let me just, I, I hear your point. Um, my take on it was that I, you know, 2010, I hadn't moved to LA yet. I was studying screenwriting. Mm -hmm. And the first thing they say to you is, you know, you have to think visually. You have to, yeah. it, you know, you have to think about the, the, the visuals of something. Mm -hmm. And then I remember reading The Social Network and it was the first five pages of it were just dialogue. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a tremendous bias, like the the film student in me mm. was like, this doesn't even, yeah. I can't even, you know, and I, I read the script and I was like, I just don't get it. I don't mm -hmm. think this is going to be great. 
you know, just from a pure, like the film snob or I shouldn't say snob, the film student in me mm-hmm. that was like, well, you can't do this and blah, 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 blah. Now, the things that I couldn't have taken in before mm-hmm. I had actually seen the movie, one, the culture impact of what Facebook was going to be. But she, it already was. That's why they were making uh, the movie. 20, yeah. Oh, I remember. I mean, I remember yeah, yeah. when it came out and, yeah. and they were making it because they were like, wow, this is, that's why they made him into some kind of genius, which he, which he But I had not, read the I script repeat. before, you know, this was um, before the movie. I don't know. I don't know what the timeline is. But the other things that I didn't realize were, one, it's David Fincher. So uh-huh. he shot the hell out of this thing. What so, does that mean? Shot the hell out of it. He just—it's like, beautiful. It's just this amazingly. It, it really is a like a really beautiful. I mean, it's an incredible. It's David Fincher. I'm not going to okay. say anymore. You can scoff over there all you want. Okay. And do your little like <laughs> whatever you're doing, but it's David Fincher. He's okay. arguably between him and Christopher Nolan as good as it gets, and it was also Trent Reznor from mm-hmm. Nine Inch Nails who did the music soundtrack for mm-hmm. it, and. That combination of mm-hmm. things just works. And regardless of how you feel about the performances, mm-hmm. those performances also connected with the society. Now, I will also say this. I think that if we go back mm-hmm. and look at that movie, it's not as interesting, potentially evergreen wise no. as we think it was. Yeah. I think it, it, I think it caught a zeitgeist thing. Yeah. And um, I think it was too early. It's one of those movies that uh, Bill Simmons does a good job of this, where they'll go back and they'll do the the ten year Oscars, mm-hmm. where you go, all right, out of the two thousand tens, what was the best? Mm-hmm. And that movie was up for awards and Oscars and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And I think if we look back, that movie will be one of those films that was. I think it was entertaining. I'm not saying it wasn't, but um, you know, it just I don't I just don't think it's something that when you look back, it'll have as much as many legs, if you will. Okay. That's how I feel. No, personally. that's how it, yeah. But it's, I still haven't unpacked. Maybe it would be interesting to see it again and see what trick, because what triggered me, I guess, because I really, I, well, you're I not cannot, really triggerable, which no, is, which is really, interesting. This is why it's interesting to me and why yeah. I'm even like asking you to go further. It's very this. interesting. Cause yeah. you don't normally, you're, no. you're not usually on the side of, I've never even, I don't think I've even heard you say the word offended before. Yeah. And, yeah. and for some reason that film kind of, you know, I do have, I think I do have like the misunderstood geek in me as well, mm-hmm. but I never got to be, I, I think because I was a girl, I didn't really get to like have like, to use my geekdom as something that ultimately redeems me. And that's what the whole film is about. So when you watch Revenge of the Nerds, you really, I guess, and I also, do, I really, <laughs> <laughs> and I also, but it, if they were female nerds, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> But I mean, there's also like with the Big Bang Theory, it's also about I I just I think maybe that trope, the trope of like the nerd, the male nerd, you know, there's an argument, though, that it's it was the way that, you know, the patriarchy got to feel like they were, you know, the, the underdog. Yeah, it's like oh, that's still straight white men now feeling like they're the underdog yeah, they're un- somehow. The underdog yeah, underdog because did, they're yeah. super smart. Yeah, you and know? well, because they were quote unquote nerdy. And what's funny about that is I remember as a kid watching Revenge of the Nerds, mm-hmm. and I've never seen that. But it's an old, it's an older movie, and I don't even know if it holds up. But they were mm-hmm. fun at the time, and um, but now it does feel like because I wasn't very nerdy. I was mm-hmm. a, I you know, I didn't start really. I mean, high school. You didn't school. embrace your nerddom. Well, I didn't embrace. You weren't I didn't... nerdy as a magician. Come on. Well, but that—that's <laughs> a different nerdiness, it, I guess. But but it was also, 
I think I did that because I couldn't figure out how to do stand up. Mm. I think I was always inspired to be on the stage and this was just like a way that, mm. you know, and I got there. And I think ultimately what got me out of magic was the was fact the that, that you no, it was the fact it? that I didn't like the, the, the what nerdiness. came with being a magician <laughs> and just the social stigmas of like, I just didn't want that. I just didn't want that. Mm. That was just my personal, that was my personal decision. Yeah. But I do think now there is a part of me that would like to see a Revenge of the Jocks movie. Oh, <laughs> who, who like, they're just tired of being suppressed by the nerds now. Well, I mean, look, the whole world is like, ner- like we're, ru- the, I mean, well, the, the Silicon Valley. Yeah, it's all, like, that's what it is. The closest thing to magicians then, these days are people who can write code. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really, yeah. you know, and, and. Rightfully so. The, the the internet age has, you know, completely changed our lives. So, mm-hmm. of course, they're so going the to be in charge. Yeah. yeah. And I don't mind that really smart people are in charge. But they're I, not that, that. What I don't like is there's that scene where the, the, the guy who plays Zuckerberg. But Jesse in, Eisenberg. Justin Eisenberg. Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> Eisenberg. <laughs> um, fuel, contain, focus your rage. <laughs> um, he, you know, he's like talking to these execs and he's like, I mean, he basically just says, I'm the smartest person here. You can't even think as fast as I do. Yeah. And it, like, well, basically, in that respect, the subs- it's a, it's a, it's that a is fantasy f- for... It is a fantasy, yeah. yeah. But there is just no... And that... Everyone I mean, there, wishes there they is... could be that. Not everyone, but people, there's a deep sense of like, everyone feels repressed. Mm-hmm. And it would be nice to be the smartest guy in the room and tell people that. Yeah. If you were actually right. Yeah, yeah I don't know. It triggers me somehow. Yeah. yeah. And it was a combination. It was a combination of the way women were treated in that film. Again, I mean, I've yeah. seen so many, I don't know, gangster movies, this kind yes, of thing, yes, where it's yes. like women are like that. But it just doesn't bother me in those contexts Yeah. somehow. But Whereas for some reason this, this did. This somehow did, yeah. yeah. Because it was covering, it felt like it was covering it up in a way, yeah. you know? Where it was like, well, actually, this whole time he just wanted this kind of nerdy girl who didn't quite appreciate him as much as he felt she should or something. Yeah. And Oversimplification. And, yeah, it's... But when I, whenever I do feel that, I feel like it's more some uh, an opportunity to, to to examine that feeling and wonder, okay, well, what is it? At, and I haven't figured it out with this particular film. Yeah. Well, maybe that's something we can yeah, rewatch sure. and we can and look at. Yeah. Um, okay, so we were, we ended with the statistic that between two thousand and nine and twenty nineteen, basically the number of scripted shows doubled. You counter it, saying that yes, it's doubled, but the number of episodes per show has also gotten smaller. Correct. Yeah. And that, that's a significant thing that, you know, maybe if you gave him notes, you would add to that. Well, it's just another thing to, that I don't know if he's fully thinking about yeah. that. And how many, what's more interesting would be is what percentage of the people are receiving what percentage of the money. Yeah. That, I think and that then, statistic is yeah. a little misleading. Yeah. Um, more shows mean that executives are forced to take a lot of chances, if only to fill up their programming slots. They also, uh, they also mean that the audience for any given show no longer needs to be particularly large. The Beverly Hillbillies, the year of Cronkite's debut, had a rating of 36, which means that 36% of households with television sets were turned in, were tuned in, which what's, what's interesting to me about the household statistic is that household means that potentially it's like three or four or five people watching Correct. per household, whereas today I think they just count individual like views. Which yeah. sometimes is people watching together, but I think people it, it have more. It does feel of a... like even at its finest and most granular, it's mm-hmm. a good guess. Yeah, you were... but the the thing about when Netflix tells you how many people they tune don't in, tell oh anybody. they don't tell you yeah. yeah, but when but I guess the 
it just seems like the data from the internet can be more, much more accurate because you literally know oh, every single person. it's way more accurate. Yeah. It's way more Obvious. They know it. They know it. Yeah. They, I mean, they know literally the yeah. number, like the they, exact number and how long. They can tell you to the second what you're looking at yeah. and then curate your specific yeah. home screen to yeah. that specific login. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's that information that is, is proprietary yeah. and they don't share they that don't and they're share. trying. I mean, part of this WGA thing is that that should be public the, information. The people who are super successful don't fully understand. Mm -hmm. The only way you can I mean, and this is something that I've actually asked at times during different talks, by the amount of money they're willing to give someone, mm -hmm. can you then potentially create some sort of comp Mm -hmm. to the amount of views that something is getting mm -hmm. because obviously if, if a show is doing well mm -hmm. they're going to keep giving it seasons mm -hmm. but you never know exactly how well it's doing yeah and so let's say you're that person's agent unless they're really famous and they have leverage mm -hmm. or they're they have another show or they have some sort of leverage if you're just some person like you kind of gotta you don't you're going in it blind but you just know that they want another season so it must have enough views, but does it have actually a way more views? I mean, they could getting... also just be rigging it and making it like taking into account the views, but also making their own decisions. And they could also be realizing that something as stupid as like, hey, we just need shows about rugby players in Australia. Well, didn't you say that your friend was in like talking to Netflix about his show and he did all these like and they loved it and he did all these meetings and then they were like, okay, well, after all these meetings, they're like, okay, well, we're going to run it through our algorithm and then we'll see. This is a terrifying thing yeah. to have heard. Yeah. Yeah. They, he was pitching a docu-series and pitched it to specifically Netflix. And I mean, this is something he's getting a lot of meetings on. This isn't little stuff. Like he's mm -hmm. already attached big name directors of shows that, um, of, of big things. Like this is a, this could be, there's not a lot of money in, in docu-series is, but mm -hmm. it, you know, it's something that could be on Netflix or it could be on HBO Go or Hulu or something mm -hmm. like that. Could be one of those six episode things, like how the Duplass brothers have been doing all these like mm -hmm. wild, wild country and a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff that they like to do that doesn't make a lot of money, but that could mm -hmm. get, be really good for someone's exposure. They pitch it to Netflix. He specifically says they loved it. Mm -hmm. And they said, we'll put it through our algorithm and let you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that is just like, I mean, I, of course they would mm -hmm. have, An hey, algorithm, it, yeah. you know, we, we have this, 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 and this. And if it, or maybe that's enough. just what they say when they don't want something. Possibly. <laughs> it could no be algorithm. and that's a that, that is an interesting thing that people need to Yeah. It could just be a soft no. A soft yeah. Yeah. So I think I'm discovering that we're on well we're on page 2 and we have like <laughs> 20 page how we have, 10 page no 12 pages to read. Total, yeah. Or that I wanted to read you. Yeah. I mean it's great cuz there's it's just it's well, making it's us talk a lot about of, so many different yeah, things. Yeah, conversation here. Um and I think we should just divide it into more yeah. episodes. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot to unpack here yeah. and it's it's just, it's rich. Yeah. So I guess we'll get back to maybe uh, two, the next two pages <laughs> in the next episode. <laughs> well, maybe episode. we burn through all of it. We don't yeah, know. we'll see. To be continued. To be continued. I hope you enjoyed that conversation from the high-low art divide. In the next episode, Nick and I attempt to finish reading the chapter on the film industry from the death of the artist, 
but it only gives us more and more to talk about. Namely, we talk a lot about technology and small YouTube creators and their cancelings. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so as not to miss the next conversation. An opera singer and a comedian walk into a bar is a segment of the Artists on the Verge podcast written, recorded, and edited by me, Emma Katrovis. The music for this segment is the song Stars by Janice Ian, performed by me, though sadly not in a bar, but edited to sound like it. All information about the podcast, where to follow it, and how to support it is in the description. Here's to being on the verge. <laughs>